I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I have two guests with me, including our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns, as well as our friend Daniel Harrigus, senior editor of Strong Towns. So welcome back, Daniel. Thanks, Abby. So I'm so glad that you are joining us today because we are going to be talking about a topic that you happen to write a lot about, and that is the ever-pressing issue of housing in our society. I know that both of you probably have very nuanced and yet perhaps somewhat differing perspectives on what the right path forward is, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. The article that we will be covering is entitled, It's Time for America to Reinvest in Public Housing, written by Ross Barkin and published in the New York Times. So the article starts out by recognizing that we are facing an eviction crisis in our country, and that is being staved off by a moratorium that will eventually expire with very limited public housing options. There's a possibility that increased evictions could lead to even more homeless residents in our cities. So the author proposes that one big step forward in addressing this issue would be repealing the Clinton administration's uh, Housing Act edition called the 1998 Faircloth Amendment. This amendment prohibits any net increase in public housing units nationwide. Expanding public housing, however, will undoubtedly be a culture war issue in the mainstream political theater. Public housing has largely been viewed as a failure in our culture, with both Democrats and Republicans cheering on its destruction over the years, according to the author. So expansion of public housing in more recent decades has been really substituted by Section 8 housing vouchers, which open up the door for discrimination. In addition to not building more public housing units, a quarter million units have been demolished in the past 20, 30 years, and some have even been privatized. So politicians like AOC are calling for a New Deal style of housing policy, which would include massively expanding public housing units in the United States in response to this impending eviction crisis. So Chuck and I have discussed many times on the show that housing is this very incredibly complex issue that touches national, state, and local politics. And there definitely doesn't seem to be a consensus on what scale housing should be really addressed at. And I want to start by asking you, Daniel, what your reaction to the story was and whether or not a national response to housing really aligns with what a strong town's approach might look like. So I have two reactions here, and one is my kind of cranky gut reaction, and the other is my more measured strong town's advocate reaction. And the cranky gut reaction is that I think public housing gets an unfairly kind of bum rap for reasons that really aren't intrinsic to the fact that it's public housing or the fact that it's government funded. And I'm probably influenced here by the the teachers I've had. I I studied in grad school under Ed Getz, who has written multiple books about the history of the U.S. public housing program. And he calls it a story of loud failures outnumbered by quiet successes. 
Um, and I think he's right about that. Um, right down the street from me here in Sarasota is a quiet success. It's a um, recently rebuilt public housing complex. It's run by the housing authority. It has a mix of moderate and very low income tenants. And it's kind of a new urbanist design. It's, you know, cute little front porches. Like it fits in with the fabric of the city really nicely. It's a really kind of dignified, nice way to live. And it's a secure living for these people. And I think it's good that it exists. I think it's serving people who aren't well served by the market. As a strong towns advocate, I do look at proposals to kind of supersize public housing, like, oh, we need a a dramatic federal push to build millions of units of this. And I think, okay, now you're you're gonna hit all the pitfalls that you hit with a top-down program implemented without nuance. And I also think that there's a scale problem where, you know, what what public housing does is it allows a certain subset of people an alternative to participating in the housing market but it doesn't fix the dysfunction of the market. So like, I think where I might depart from Chuck, I don't want to speak for Chuck, but where I might depart from a lot of strong towns advocates is I think there is a, a really solid place for government developed and maybe even government run housing as one approach among many to solving our affordability crisis. Did you call yours cranky? Is that your first, was your first reaction? Dave? I think well, the cranky reaction is people criticizing public housing and I want to <laughs> jump to its defense. And I want to say, <laughs> no, the problems with this are not fundamental to what public housing is. The problems have to do with the politics of the 1950s and 60s. The problems have to do with what was happening to cities in general during that era. And you look at something like Cabrini Green or Pruitt Igo that's really infamous. And the reasons it failed are complex and they can't be reduced to well, the government can't run housing competently, which I don't think is true. I agree with that. Let me give you my cranky first, and then I'll, I'll try to be more nuanced after that. Because the article that we're discussing, the original title of it was, it's time for America to reinvest in public housing. And, and actually, that's a pretty like measured, we, we could have a nice conversation about that. The title's been changed because it's more clickbaity and because you know it's 2021 and all that too. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knows how to fix housing. It's a story about how like one little change in, you know, the Faircloth Amendment back in from 1997 somehow set us on this path of doom. And now, you know, removing this will will set us free and we can go to this you know, government run housing utopia. I get cranky because I do feel like the conversation we have is the one that Daniel describes. I mean, I had Ed Getz in graduate school as well. The idea of many loud failures, you know, interspersed with some quiet successes, I think it is a byproduct of the idea that we should have these big approaches. It's almost like the argument is, well, the, the big approach wasn't done right. I, I think if we look back to the 1997 Faircloth Amendment, I think it's important to understand the period of time that we were in and what was wrong with that period of time to properly understand this amendment. I mean, the idea was if we could create these innovative housing products like mortgage-backed securities that which were you know created in the early 80s, but we could really expand them with really advanced levels of securitization. We could create all kinds of liquidity in the housing market, inject all kinds of money into, we could encourage people to take things like home equity loans to be able to buy cars and vacations and stuff. Cause you know, that would be great for the economy and great for Americans and great for families. We could do all these things and it would be wonderful. And you know what? 
is holding us back is the government is kind of competing with that by creating all this housing. Why, why would we want people in government housing? Why wouldn't we want them sharing in the American dream? I think we can look back at that and say, how ridiculous of a notion this was. I mean, how asinine to think that if we just made everybody's home into a bank and then juiced up you know, the value of those homes, that somehow this would work out great for the economy. I think you can reject that notion without having to embrace the antithesis of that, which is the government should build large housing complexes and, and, and house people. I think getting rid of the Faircloth Amendment, if that's really what this is, is discussion is about the idea that housing, you know, government-owned housing should be a static number, regardless of what happens in the market, regardless of what happens to the population, is just kind of on its face a little bit silly. To put it in the context of, I think, what our general beliefs were at the time about how housing was going to propel our economy to greatness and save us and make us all rich, it looks even more ridiculous. I think that the design of public housing and where it fits into our neighborhoods is an, an important distinction because it has a lot to do with how we perceive public housing. You know, I actually live adjacent to a public housing project and they were designed as townhomes and they're pretty appealing. I, I wouldn't say that they're perfectly successful, but I think that it, they're they're better than what you would typically think of as public housing. There's also lots of projects in my area that are mixed income and they're designed in a way that is very appealing. The article has this line where they state that the primary problem with public housing was that the government didn't provide enough funds to maintain the buildings and allow tenants to live with dignity. And I think that the design of these types of projects are related to whether or not tenants are living with dignity. If there are these brutalist hellscapes that are totally separated from surrounding contexts and neighborhoods and communities, that really creates a psychological effect for people living there. It degrades your personal sense of dignity and connection to the surrounding community and sense of being a citizen. And there's this great point to be made about how public housing is actually designed. And I, I was recently assisting on this technical assistant panel that was hosted by the Urban Land Institute. And we were talking about ideas around how public housing could be mixed into larger neighborhood contexts. And many of our panelists did express that public housing really can't take on this brutalist design that we often associate it with. There's conversations in a lot of housing circles talking about scaling up public housing and where it should go. There's uh, been, you know, controversy and political angst around, you know, that public housing is going to come to your suburb and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, 2020, I feel like was dominated with this type of rhetoric. And I'm actually very skeptical about why you would want to locate public housing in a context that would require a personal vehicle. If someone is living in public housing, the last thing that they need is a car bill, and that would be just as expensive as, as the cost of housing. And it makes me think of the Center for Neighborhood Technology that has developed this H plus T housing transportation index that maps out how much of people's income is spent on housing and transportation combined. And this is a very important insight when we're thinking about where public housing would be expanded. Uh, because 
most people in, in many areas are spending upwards of half of their income on housing and transportation just in the general market. So I, I think of these existing public housing projects, I don't see why we wouldn't just reinvest in public housing where it currently is and potentially scale it up to the next increment and, and add more units that way. So can I make a, a flaming statement and then allow Daniel to tell me tell everybody why I'm wrong? <laughs> Should I? Public housing to me, I can see where from a very pragmatic standpoint, like dealing with the issue in front of us, that you know, public housing, there's a real conversation we need to have about how do we get more housing units in place? And is this, is this the quickest way? Is this the most pragmatic way to do this? But public housing, just in general as a conversation, has always seemed to me to be a little like our, our healthcare situation. I'll give this to you as like a raw conservative statement. And then again, I'm, I'm doing this to allow Daniel the opportunity to, to knock me down or, or say where this is a narrow kind of view. In healthcare, the way I would describe our healthcare system is the government, through regulation and incentive, getting together with business to basically make healthcare unaffordable. And then the government stepping in and saying, we can solve this problem we created by just having us run the whole thing. And I feel like public housing in a lot of ways is this. If you look at the distortions of the housing market, the things that underline it that are making housing unaffordable, th there's a lot of ways you point to the market as being broken and not working. And whether that's a market that has you know allowed true criminality in terms of you go back to 2008 and 2009 and all the things that were done to juice up the market then that have gone unpunished that were really criminal but you look at essentially a you know a, a tacit agreement since then and really before then too but particularly since then that what we were going to do as government policy through the banks through the federal reserve through our fiscal and monetary policy was prop up a housing market that we had called a bubble and basically restore that bubble. And now you have what I think is one of the most destructive social policies in modern times to basically price people out of housing and all the other things that come along with that. And now the government steps in and says, hey, we can solve this for you. Why don't you just let us you know, provide more housing units? Like I'm sick of getting their help, quite frankly. Daniel, that that was me with my, you know, closest rendition to a flaming conservative. I hope you will give the opposite viewpoint. That wasn't really very flaming. Um, I expected more <laughs> from you, Jack. Um, that was that was pretty measured. I, I think you make a good point about, you know, we've got this really convoluted system, and and healthcare is like this too, where we have a bunch of pieces of it that are kind of kludges that were developed at one point or another, and a lot of them are working at cross purposes. And the existing way that we build subsidized housing for low-income Americans is absolutely like that. I mean, the biggest housing program right now is run by the IRS, not even by HUD. It's the low-income housing tax credit, and it's this incredibly complicated way of kind of, you know, you're almost laundering housing through, you know, these big investors who are going to finance such and such number of low-income units. Like, it, it's a weird, no one would, would, starting from the ground up, would rationally design the system that we have now. And I, so I think that is where a lot of the appeal comes to just say, well, public housing sounds so simple by comparison. The government's going to build it. They're going to operate it. We're going to adequately fund it. Like, 
it can't be worse than the mess we have now. And I like, I get the appeal of that. And yet at the same time, like, I think you're completely right. There is a fundamental dysfunction in the market. Like I, I, I consider myself pretty left politically, but I part from some of my maybe more top down or more statist left wing friends on a basic question of like, you know, all else being equal, do we think what percent of the population would we like to have living in social housing? You know, 10, 20, 30, 40. Why wouldn't we rather have a market that functions well and that delivers abundant housing of a kind that allows people to live a good life in a prosperous place so that most people get by just fine on that system? And then we're going to intervene, we're going to do something for those who the market isn't serving, but, but it should be a small percentage. Public housing, just it isn't going to, alone, it's not going to be the flagship policy that's going to get us there. I do think there are some good reasons for the government to be a housing developer. And for I, I think there are some really good reasons for public housing to be part of the mix. But it shouldn't be the flagship part of our housing policy agenda because it doesn't actually address the dysfunction. So, Chuck, if you wanted me to like completely disagree with you, uh, I don't think I delivered that. Well, as usual, I, you're you're also very measured. So, I I agree with what Daniel just said. I mean, I I do think that that is the I can see a role for the government building housing and the government actually being involved in it. But if I try to draw what the inspiration of the Fairchild Amendment was in 1997, it, it is an underlying a notion or agreement that public housing should be transitional. And if it's not transitional, if it's not something that we can eventually move people up and through, we're losing part of the, the mobility in, of America. And that should tell us that something else is broken in the system, not just merely that there's not enough housing. Exactly. And it's unfortunate that you guys are so measured because I was expecting a fight today. So <laughs> I, I good for you guys. I'll come out of it if you want. I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to take the bait. But, I, I uh, don't think you understand, though. This is two Minnesotans fighting. This is what uh, it sounds like. Oh, this is what it sounds like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> this must be what can, it sounds like for Canadians to be fighting, too, huh? There, there is a case I'd like to make for maybe more aggressive government involvement in this realm, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear Chuck respond to it, if you, if I may, Abby. Yes, please. Um, the case here that I see, I mean, so there are a couple of reasons you would want the government to be a housing developer at a substantial scale, and one is serving people who the market doesn't serve. One is that you can build in a way that's counter-cyclical. So when the, the market has a downturn, when construction falls off, you may still have a lot of people struggling to make rent but the private sector isn't building so much where you can step in. At that point, you have the ability to actually use policy to mitigate some of those cycles to some extent. And I, I can see that case. The one that's most interesting to me, and this is the one I really want to hear Chuck respond to, is this idea of like decommodification of some part of the housing stock. And that's a word that you really hear in like political left circles, like decommodification. Sounds like this anti-capitalist thing. But, you know, we talk a lot at Strong Towns about the, this dysfunction in the housing market being, to a large extent, a result of the extreme financialization of it, and that we've propped up this whole economic apparatus on the notion, on the back of the notion that housing is going to go up and up and up forever. And invariably, that means it's going to go up until a lot of people are priced out. And so we've talked about things that I think that aren't public housing, but that would qualify as decommodification in some respect. We've talked a lot at Strong Towns about like the land value tax, for example, where the whole purpose of that is to 
remove the the speculative incentive for people to engage in rent-seeking behavior, like to hoard land, to engineer more scarcity of housing, because then you can reap windfall profits on your expensive land. You know, some public housing models where maybe it's not so much about the government being the permanent landlord, but it's things like what Singapore does, which is very close to how a community land trust works in the U.S. Uh, they build the housing. They they sell the housing itself to private owners, but they retain control of the underlying land with a 99-year ground lease. And there are limits when you resell your quote-unquote public housing unit on there are limits on how much of the equity you can retain as profit. Um, so it works very much like a land trust. It sort of creates a stock of permanently affordable housing that is privately owned. So I think there's this whole world of solutions that might fall under that umbrella of decommodification, of how do we get some land out of the speculative market, but that aren't capital P public housing, per se. Let me try to build a bridge on that one because I, I see where you're going and I, I feel like there's a lot to talk about there. The observation that I would make is that the way we've set up the system today crowds out things that the market would, I think, normally provide. I can't tell you how many times just talking to developers and, and working with developers, they will say, you know, well, I, I could do that project or I could, I could buy that house and, and turn it into a duplex or I could... Uh, remodel that place, or I, yes, I could do that, but there's so much incentive for me to just do this. And there's a market for the single family home on the cul-de-sac that is endless, that you know the government is subsidizing. There's a mortgage market set up for, it's really easy. It's a product that everyone can get. It's, it's like, I'm making stupid money now. Why would I do something that you know, I'll paraphrase John Anderson, the incremental develop, developer, you know, is high on brain damage and low on return. Like, why would I do that? And so I can see a role. And, and to me, that gets into that commodification of housing. You know, if, if I'm a developer doing commodity housing, I'm just building essentially the similar product over and over and over again in an assembly line way. And our economic system, which values transactions, has said, we're going to put a floor under that. So you're not going to lose money. So you can do that all day long. Our cities need something else and our, our neighborhoods need something else and, and the people who live in our places often need something else. And so I can see a role for the government coming in and saying, look, this is a product that actually has a market demand for it. This is a product that actually can happen in the marketplace. But because of the way we've structured our markets, it's been crowded out. And so we are going to either A, subsidize, B, construct, C, create, you know, some type of, as, as Daniel described it, a land trust or what have you, to allow that uh, thing to come out in this very distorted marketplace. I think the only qualms I have with that is that a lot of times those government actions become, in the way the rest of our housing market has become a permanent fixture. And I, I think, you know, land trusts especially kind of freak me out because the idea that you would have land, and we're not talking land, you know, in some historic important place or some, you know, place where we want to preserve, a, you know, some ancient thing about us, but we're talking about, you know, land that is nondescript from other land in our community being tied up in perpetuity where it cannot be changed or, or redeveloped or modified in any way because of someone decided that that's the way it should be. Those things always freak me out a little bit because of the future implications. But yeah, I think 
you know, we could find a lot of things to agree about. And the idea of getting rid of the commodity aspect of housing. So I'm going to stop us here. I think that's a good note to stop on because it's all the time we have for today. I appreciate both of you coming in and having this conversation. And I hope that we can continue it as you know we, we continue to see articles about housing and public housing in the next year and beyond. But before we do conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is part of the show where we can share anything that we have been up to lately, anything we've been watching, reading, listening to. So I'm going to start by asking you, Daniel, what have you been up to? I have been reading, and I'm a little embarrassed given what I do for a living that I didn't read this book years ago, but I've been reading Small is Beautiful uh, by E.F. Schumacher which is sort of, um, we don't cite Schumacher as much as we do someone like Jane Jacobs, but the ideas in it are sort of a touchstone for Strongtown's thinking, I think. Um, and I'm, it's funny to kind of get around to it now because it's this mix of like one paragraph will be just this really dated kind of product of its time, which was the mid-1970s. And then the next paragraph will be like some mind-blowing insight. It's been good food for thought. It was good. You know, I go on... Um, we we were up in Minnesota with my family over the break. We drove up there to avoid flying during the pandemic. And we went up to the North Shore of Lake Superior after Christmas, which we've my family and I have done every year, like my whole life. And it's always this kind of like, I always go with a book or two that like deals with some deep questions about the world. And I just like sit in the rocking chair for hours and stare at Lake Superior and read and think. And it's like the perfect way to close out the year. So uh, that's what I did. That sounds lovely. What have you been up to, Chuck? Well, I, I was going to applaud Daniel. I, I feel like Schumacher is a little bit like the Psalms where you you read a page and then you go for a long <laughs> walk, right? And think about the implications. I am starting one of the great courses. I had this one recommended to me and this is going to, it's, it's called The Black Death, The World's Most Devastating Plague, but it uh, goes through the, the time period of the Black Death. And I'm anxious to see what it is. The, the thing I'm interested in is the social dynamics that come about because of it. And so I, I had it recommended to me for that, that aspect of it. And I'm going to start that right now this afternoon. That sounds awesome. I'm actually currently not reading anything, but I did do something that I haven't done in a while. And I binge watched a show last week. Um, I'm not proud of it, but I watched a show called You. I don't know if either of you guys have heard about it, but it's absolutely terrifying. It's essentially a psychological thriller that has two seasons that follows the the events and perspective of a young man who turns out to be a serial killer. So it's it's an incredibly terrifying show, and I was excited to hear that there is a third season coming out. So. I'm, I will be continuing to watch it. So Joe Minicosi told me like last year that I needed to watch Dexter, which is about, I don't know how if either of you know Dexter, but Dexter is a serial killer. Like It's Joe similar to that. Okay. He described him as like the benevolent serial killer. It's sad because I wound up watching over the course of many months, the entire series and I never liked it. Like I never, I, I, it was one of these things where like, I wanted to see what happened, but I never liked him. I never liked any, like I never liked the show and now they're, yeah, they're rebooting it. And I'm like, for crying out loud, I'm going to wind up watching that too. And I just feel like, ugh. 
Yeah. What What's different about this show is that it it's completely from the perspective of of the person who is a serial killer, and you can hear his thoughts. And he isn't necessarily benevolent, but he is. He perceives himself to be. So you can hear his narrative and basically the mental gymnastics that are rationalizing why he does what he does, but he's essentially, you know, a stalker and a serial killer. And it's just, it's such a fascinating show. And it's also fairly terrifying. The first season is, I think, uh, more, it feels more realistic. So I, I actually think it's scarier. And the, the second season, I think, becomes it becomes less realistic of a storyline, but is still very compelling and interesting. So should I tell my wife you're recommending this one for our kids, like the the Queen's yes. Gambit? Yeah, okay. Yes, this is a child-friendly show. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to get myself in trouble with that. Again, Don't yeah. Don't take my advice. <laughs> I did. Okay. My wife My wife is watching Queen's Gambit, and I told her, I said, you know, Abby said uh, that the girls can watch this, and she's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Don't take my advice. I don't have any kids. <laughs> okay, well, thank you both for joining me today and taking the time to chat about this. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Take care.